Welcome to Market Scales, The Trust Revolution, How Trust Unlocks the Future. Hosted by the CEO of White Fox Defense, a global leader in drone airspace security, here's technology entrepreneur, Luke Fox. Hello, and welcome to The Trust Revolution. Today, we're going to explore how spies build trust with intel sources, what trust looks like behind closed doors at the White House, and how trust is proven during tense negotiations with terrorists. Joining us today is retired Colonel Christopher Costa. During his 34 years in the Department of Defense, Colonel Costa ran a wide range of intelligence and special operations in Panama, Bosnia, Iraq, and Afghanistan, earning him two bronze stars for sensitive human intelligence work. Colonel Costa then went on to serve as the Special Assistant to the United States President and was Senior Director for Counterterrorism and Hostage Affairs at the White House on the National Security Council. Now that he is done saving the world, Colonel Costa is sharing with the public how intelligence agencies and espionage has played a critical role in world history and still has an enormous impact on our daily lives. As the Executive Director of the Air National Spy Museum, Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Luke, it's a privilege to be able to join you today. Thank you very much. Well, Chris, I know that trust, uh, from our conversations previously, that trust really is uh, something that's core to your belief system and something that's played a huge role in your career. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey and how trust has shaped it? Yeah, Luke, I'd be happy to. I think trust is fundamental to everything that we do in the military and in our intelligence work. In the military, it starts off when we swear an oath to the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. We learn trust on that day. We put our right hand up and swear an oath to our nation. And then we earn trust with our troops. We earn trust uh, with our nation. And frankly, the U.S. military in particular is, is always considered one of the most highly trusted institutions in the United States. Gallup polls repeatedly turn out the fact that the United States is in fact, or the United States military is in fact a highly trusted institution. 74% of Gallup polls repeatedly, <laughs> repeatedly uh, reinforce that point. So I, th I think that means the United States public has a great deal of uh, respect for the U.S. military. Absolutely. And I'm curious, why do you think that is? So trust, you've talked about how it's so ingrained in the military. Has, what does that look like for you? Well, I mean, early on in my career, it, it was pretty simple, right? I was responsible for a platoon of 35 folks. I had non-commissioned officers who I mentored and coached, and frankly, they mentored and coached me. But we all relied on one another because we knew we could go to combat together. So in training, we trained hard. We prepared for the potential of going to war. I mean, we went to uh, rigorous training schools such as Ranger School, where you relied on your Ranger buddy to do the right thing, meaning to provide security so maybe you could get some rest and vice versa. You couldn't fall asleep when your Ranger buddy was relying on you. He trusted you to remain awake. And, uh, you know, there are consequences if you let down the team. And really, this is fundamental 
to things that we all learn in childhood about working as a member of a team, except for in the military and in intelligence work, it has lethal consequences. Um, and at the end of the day, you know you are serving your respective nation. This is pretty universal worldwide, but in particular in the United States, we we swear an oath to the Constitution. It's something we think about and we talk about, and we rely on each each other, really. And I learned that as an infantryman, and of course, I carried that into the world of intelligence much later in my career. And so as you transitioned from the military where it's very clear, you fall asleep when somebody is depending on you, and it could be lethal consequences for everyone involved. How is that, uh, when you go into the intelligence world and you made that transition, is it that direct or is it maybe more nuanced? Like what, what are the, where does trust play a role in the intelligence world? Well, in the intelligence world, trust is double-edged because we are building trust potentially with a source that understands that it is sacrosanct that I protect that source from being uncovered. So I have to protect his identity. I have to provide security for that source. His family relies on me to protect him, to protect his identity. At the same time, we understand in the intelligence business, I should qualify, I'm talking about the human intelligence business, the business of recruiting spies. We understand that there's a possibility that we're dealing with a double agent who's actually working for a hostile intelligence service, trying to fool me, trying to build a relationship with me in setting me up or, or reporting back to his handlers, you know, a, a hostile intelligence service all about me. So there's an understanding though in the business of intelligence that trust is sacrosanct. But at the same time, it is this game that is played universally. We tell those stories in the museum. The idea that one, I have to be honest in all my reporting. There is no equivocation on that. When I report to, to a commander or to a policymaker, it is truth in reporting and you have to do that unflinchingly. So there's no hedging there. You report truth to power when you're an intelligence officer. That's ingrained in everything we do. But when you're out in the field, you understand that even though you're building trust with a source, there's also a level of manipulation, right? There's trying to get that source to do things that are not necessarily natural. Hopefully, manipulation is a much smaller part of that relationship that you're building. And I would argue that the relationships I built with sources were built on a mutual trust a sincere understanding of who that human being is, what his or her limitations are, what their worries are, what their concerns are, what risks they're going to take. But I am trusted to protect that source. So it is an interaction that begins the very first time that I tell that individual that I'm actually an intelligence officer and I am responsible for their security. In most cases, when that conversation happens, they aren't entirely surprised. They've, there are breadcrumbs along the way. 
uh, so they shouldn't be shocked and, and horrified that I have been, to some degree, not being forthright in the initial relationship, right? So how do you create that trust when you make this reveal, hey, I've kind of been cheating on you in a way? Right. right how, do you, how do you then say, and now you should trust me even more and work for me? Like, can you give me an example of that? You know, obviously with as much as you're allowed to share, but what's that process? Yeah, I can, I think. Well, I think it, it's a natural process. Again, I think most human intelligence officers are high on emotional intelligence or they won't be successful in this business. So already you've spent a lot of time with this individual and yeah, you, you cheated to some extent. You didn't tell them right up front that you're an intelligence officer. But it reinforces the narrative that the reason I couldn't do that is because our relationship can't be known to the wider world. I can keep a secret because this, at the end of the day, this relationship is about protecting that source. And there, there's an understanding that I can trust this officer, this intelligence officer, because he was very deliberate and, and the source will reflect back in all of the meetings. There were breadcrumbs along the way, but that source understands to do this business appropriately, you have to set conditions for protecting that source. And then you have an opportunity to stop and, and assure that source based on all of these meetings that we've had, that it's at the end of the day, it's all about security of that source protecting the relationship that we have, but also to underscore the relationship piece of this, we've already built strong rapport. And I'm able to tell that source that I've been almost 100% accurate. There are some things I have to hold back to protect my uh, equities, my agencies, my nation. And that source will understand that. And in many cases, they're going to say, well, your name really isn't <laughs> Joe, is it? And I'll say, you don't have to ask that question. You probably know the answer. And there's an understanding there. There's a rapport. And remember, I've already learned a lot about this individual's family. We've talked about his hopes, his aspirations, his motivations for why he wants to take the risks he's going to take. And I keep saying he, it can very equally be a woman, right? A woman source. So that's that's kind of how this dynamic goes, Luke. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, it does. Do you, do you have an example of, uh, of a case where you've had to build that relationship, build that rapport, and ultimately have somebody do something that maybe wasn't in their best interest? Well, in many cases, a lot of what I'm asking that source to do is not in his best interest if he's compromised. So that source, especially in a combat zone, is taking a great deal of personal risk. You know, sources have throughout history, and we tell these stories at the spy museum, they've been captured, they've been interrogated, they've been tortured, they've been executed, they've been imprisoned, their families have been punished. But at the end of the day, they're taking those risks because they're motivated in some cases because they want to support the goals and objectives of the United States. Of America. But I will give you an example, a couple quick examples. Um, there was a, a, a young Taliban who crossed lines and essentially wanted to 
provide intelligence to the United States. Um, this particular case, the motivations uh, were, I think, personal. He wanted some kind of affirmation. He was not getting affirmation from serving in the Taliban. He was not able to be recognized for the work that he did, whatever that work was. And all of a sudden, he knew naturally and intuitively he could provide information that would be useful to us. And we were interested in not only that information, but in having conversations with this individual. So it was- You made almost, him feel important I made and him, valuable. That's right, important. And he was valuable. And I could do that sincerely. And this gets back to the point I've alluded to. I'm going to be honest, 98 or 99% of the time, and this guy's going to read that this individual I'm sitting in front of me is an honest individual. And he is sincerely interested in what I have to say. And he's going to protect me. But at the same time, I made it very clear with my instructions to him, with my training to him, that this was dangerous work and he was going to have to take direction from me. The relationship isn't two friends. It's me telling him what I need him to do so I can keep him alive. In this case, without betraying his age and getting into more details, I will just say that I was more like a father figure and I was somebody that he could trust and feel good about talking to. And this was going to be ostensibly the beginning of a relationship. And it wouldn't go any further unless he delivered. And he did, in fact, deliver. Because I believe that U.S. service members were saved because he was able to provide actionable intelligence that allowed us to disrupt an impending attack. And that is powerful for me as an intelligence officer to be able to deliver that kind of information to commanders that decide to execute on, on the information that I provided to disrupt. In this case, it was a network that was building improvised, improvised explosives. And those explosives were going to be used against U.S. service members. Mm -hmm. And that Hundreds Taliban delivered. I think, I, I think it's hard to, to know how lethal those explosives would have been, but suffice to say, Americans would have been horrifically wounded and killed had they executed the attack that they wanted to perpetrate. And we had all kinds of other tools to validate the reporting from this Taliban. But I think it's fair to say these kinds of stories that I'm sharing with you, Luke, they play out worldwide every day, maybe not as dramatic as the case that I just offered, but certainly for the United States and from our perspective, there are people like me day in and day out that are meeting with sources in, in combat zones that are debriefing those sources and really building relationships to save lives and to identify where terrorists are and provide reporting ultimately, in some cases, to policymakers. So this is something that repeats itself. But each one of these meetings require this balance of trust. And as I say, some manipulation, but I really want to de-emphasize that word. But we have examples of these stories at the Spy Museum, powerful examples as well.
Well, and I'm curious, Chris, in, in your life, as you're building this trust with someone, how do you, you know, there, there's that saying, if someone in a, in a relationship, if someone's willing to cheat with you, then they're willing to cheat on you, right? When you see people like uh, go into relationships with someone that they were, uh, where they were cheating on their partner, I and carrying that for, into this realm, how do you trust someone who's betraying someone else's trust, right? Like these people you're working with, they're naturally doing something that they could easily be doing to you. How do you know that they're not? And do you have an example of how you've had to play play in t- or work with that scenario? I have an example of a very deliberate way I built trust with someone that I knew could be betraying me. And it's a real simple, straightforward example. In this case, it was in Iraq. The other story I told was in Afghanistan. Um, and the individual I was dealing with already was part of the Iraqi intelligence services. So he already was a trained intelligence officer. So fundamentally, he understood this dynamic. He could be reporting back to his superiors, or he could be betraying all of us and reporting to our mutual enemies. So you go into the relationship knowing that. But there's something I did, and it was extemporaneous, really. It wasn't planned. I was uh, responsible with my team of great, great service members from the Marines, from U.S. Special Operations, uh, from the United States Army. Our job was to build a small reconnaissance and surveillance capability and really train Iraqis how to take incredible risks to do low visibility intelligence collection in the mid-2000s, perhaps the most dangerous time for Americans and our allies in Iraq. And I wanted to train a small stable of Iraqis to really do some unique collection against our adversaries. But before before our training regimen began, and fundamental to your point, we had to really interview these individuals. And really, in some cases, it was very adversarial because we had to make sure that these individuals wouldn't betray us. So this is the part of the give and take, really, of the intelligence business. So I'm telling these individuals that we're going to trust them when we train them. And then the first thing we do is interrogate them. And we also, in some cases, we use technical means. Now, fundamentally, really at the outset, they're not trusting us a whole lot, right? Right. We've made them feel uncomfortable. Yeah. But then over time, they realize, oh, this discomfort is created because it is a natural extension of the business that we're in. And it's about their security. We don't want to train an adversary, right? right? We don't want to give tools to our enemies. But there was something very interesting I had done. And again, this was extemporaneous. I told our team that we're going to lay out the rules while we're living with these individuals, while we're training them, while we're building trust. I was going to take away their weapons because I was very, very concerned. The weapons of the individuals we were training. In other Mm -hmm. words, we were going to provide their physical security. And uh, that meant we had the added burden of training them, working with them, and then providing their security. So we took away their weapons. And one day I realized this former intelligence officer, he was closer to my age. So he was much older. He had gray hair. And uh, I could tell by the relationship we began to establish after very painful interviews with him 
I could tell that this individual was very, very experienced. Mm. So I could have been extremely wary or I could have taken a bit of a leap of trust. I decided to confidentially bring him into my office and I told him that I'm going to need his, his help. He's going to have to help me coach and mentor the rest of these younger Iraqis. I need his help. And I, to demonstrate trust to him, I accepted risk without thinking through it. And I gave him back his sidearm and I told him to keep it. And that was my way of demonstrating trust in a tangible way. Right. I wanted Demonstrating him, and creating it, that bond between, right. to say, I trust you. And now you create that trust with that, 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 uh, the trust back. That's right. And that was extemporaneous. It was natural. I didn't think through it. My team looked at me funny. And when we were done, they said, boss, you, you already wrote, you know, broke your first rule. You know, you, <laughs> you let one of the guys keep a weapon in the barracks. And I said, that's because I'm trying to build trust. I walked through the logic for a couple minutes and the decision was already made and we executed it. A couple weeks later, there was a shooting incident, interestingly enough, and it took place at that barracks. There was some automatic fire at maybe two o'clock in the morning. We moved toward where the fire came from. Again, we were living among the individuals we were training and we went instinctively to the barracks. And when we went through the door, uh, with two other team members, really me be the weakest of the three of us, right? I had two guys that were, were, uh, all prepared to, you know, with their weapons and their kit to do whatever it took to defend our guys in the barracks. We didn't know what happened, but we could see that there was some automatic fire there. There was some noise in the barracks. We went through the front door and who did I see standing there right before us? It was a man with a sidearm. It was our guy with a sidearm and he smiled kind of knowingly and realized this is a precarious situation, (laughs) right? Fortunately, he smiled a little bit and our guys didn't overreact. They didn't shoot him, right? We had built a relationship. There was trust there. We could argue back and forth all day long, you know, what ifs. But at the end of the day, there was a trust there and he had his sidearm because he was prepared to protect his barracks and trust was rebuilt that day or built even more reinforced because we came to their, in quotes, rescue, right? We, in the middle of the night, didn't know what we were running into, quite literally, at two o'clock in the morning. And we still, to this day, don't know exactly what happened. He never shot. Somebody else shot into the barracks. We never determined where those bullets came from and who fired into the barracks. He just removed the sidearm to protect everybody in the barracks. If we didn't show up, we showed up. The situation was diffused. We went to and through an Iraqi chain of command to try to identify where the shots came from, why they were fired at the barracks, multiple shots. And we never found out, but it was a in a sense, a warning that we know what you're doing, we know where you are, and we began to take uh, a different approach to our own internal security. This is in the mid-2000s, before we had some of our partners literally 
kill their trainers in places like Afghanistan. So that's a very real and lethal dynamic in a training situation in a combat zone. Some individuals will turn against their American and their coalition trainers. And we were, I think, ahead of our time for thinking through all kinds of contingencies. And uh, that's just a kind of an adjunct to the story of training, training foreign partners, training them to take risks, but also this idea, this notion of building trust, this give and take. And yeah, I, it requires trust or that risk, right? right? You're, you're, you have to show risk on your part and also show up. That's what I I'm think hearing. so. Like literally showing up with, with your weapons saying, here, I'm here to risk my life to protect you just as you've done to provide this valuable information and to be trained. <laughs> yeah, I think that's exactly right. No, you're, you're right on, Luke. I'm I'm really interested, you know, going from the the IC uh, the intelligence community uh, and do, doing these trainings. You then uh, went into hostage recovery and uh, were the the senior uh, hostage recovery expert at the White House, as as I understand it. Yes, that's exactly right. And so, how do how do you balance that when you're working with these families who've had this absolutely the bit most nightmare situation happen? where some, somebody's taken uh, by hostage by terrorists, horrible things are happening to them. How do you work with these uh, in that situation and ensure every people know what they need to know but don't know too much, or is there not too much? Like how, how do you create trust in that situation? Well, that's an excellent question. So first I would answer the question by saying I, I have been on the other end of hostages where I – been collecting the intelligence to try to identify where hostages are. Uh, and, and I'm one of so many uh, military personnel that have been involved with trying to identify leads in the field overseas. So I had that experience and it became, it became a, a calling really. Uh, this was an American. We wanted to recover those Americans. We knew somewhere there was a family that wanted their loved one home, their loved ones in some cases home. So from that standpoint, it was natural to be out in the field doing that work. And it's what we love being out there and serving our nation and collectively. And then I found myself at the White House being responsible for counterterrorism policy as a policymaker, but also being the convening authority to bring together this hostage enterprise to look for strategies and policies that were going to deliver these hostages back to their families. We talked about everything from diapers for children that are being held hostage with their families to aircraft for the recoveries to the very sensitive intelligence of where they are. But And you told that to families. Of Right. That's what I was going to yeah. underscore, this idea that that's the easier part of the job. The harder part of the job is we had to engage with families. The United States has a responsibility to keep the families informed and to tell them everything that we can to the extent that we can without jeopardizing something some kind of operation that was ongoing. But in many cases, we figured out ways to be 
completely honest with families. There's no other choice. We are working on hostage solutions. There are sensitivities there with intelligence operations. There are classified uh, strictures. But at the end of the day, if we've learned nothing else, it's we have learned in the past decades that we have to engage and be continually talking to families. And I am happy to say that that is a process that continues here in Washington, D.C. with this hostage enterprise. In my role at the White House, in other individuals are with the hostage fusion cell housed at the FBI, organizations that are connected directly to the families, the U.S. Department of State, the special presidential envoy for hostage affairs. We all were syncing, synchronizing, better said, our efforts, and we communicated with the families. And I'll give you an example if I can. Yeah, please. Because this is so fascinating because transparency people talk about is so key to trust, to building trust. But it seems like at some point, maybe there's too much information. But what you're telling me is that people respond so much better and need to just know the, the flat truth. Yeah, and the United States government has learned that from the painful of ex experience of dealing with hostage families that didn't get the information that they needed in the angst and anxiety that that caused, right? We were, we being the U.S. government, was needlessly, in some cases, increasing stress loads for on families because of the way we communicated to them. So, or lack thereof. <laughs> that, exactly right. So yeah. the policies changed, families were brought into the fold, and until every hostage is recovered, we are never going to satisfy those families out there. And that's okay. That is a necessary um, challenge for people in this business. I'm gonna give you an example that every holiday, you know, we would sit with our respective families in the U.S. government, people that are working on hostages. But at the end of the day, we knew that there were families out there that were missing their loved ones. So that weighed heavy on us. And I'm not the only individual that's impassioned about hostage recovery. In fact, we're all a loose network of friends. These people that worked in the Obama administration, the Trump administration, and now the Biden administration, we all communicate to each other because there's a passion about bringing people home that need to be with their families. They need to be recovered. But at the end of the day, it's, it's traumatic for the families and we can't always bring them what they want. So sometimes we just have to know that it's it's unwinnable unless we can recover all of the hostages and bring peace to the families. So we do the best we can and understand that it's a necessary part of the work that we do, that it's going to be incomplete at times. But we build trust with families by trying to tell them everything we can. There was an example where there were military strikes during the Trump administration in particular in Syria. And none of that is uh, not known by the public, right? There were some military strikes that were conducted because of Syria's use of chemicals on their own people. We also know the Syrian government refuses to acknowledge the hostages they hold 
Um, U.S. hostages? U.S. hostages and others. Um, also, there were hostages in Syria that were held by terrorists, ISIS in particular. But after the, the strikes, almost concurrent with the strikes, we in the White House were able to communicate to the families what they needed to know. They needed to know that their loved ones were factored in to the national security decision-making process. That means we ensured that their names were mentioned, that everybody in the room with principles that are making a decision, a recommendation of the president for a decision that he has to make on whether to conduct strikes or not, that everybody in the room knew that we had hostages on the, on the ground. And we were able to communicate some of the information that we had, because not everybody in the room had the information that I had in my role as, you know, as the hostage uh, official at the White House representing the president. So we were able to make sure that the decision makers knew the names of hostages that were on the ground in Syria or believed to be on the ground in Syria. And we very rapidly made sure the families knew. And you know what? That was a real important aspect of trust with the families. And that's all they wanted to know because the strikes took place. But then they knew that their loved ones were not forgotten before those decisions were made. Now, somebody can say, well, they shouldn't have been made because there were hostages on the ground. All that has to be factored into the business of making key and significant decisions. And those are decisions in some cases only the president of the United States makes. And uh, that's why in many ways, regardless of the president, who the president is, they have the weight of the nation and the world on their shoulders. And I don't envy the position they're in. Absolutely. Just to touch on that just a little more. So the what I'm hearing is, you know, within this situation in Syria, there was potential, there was knowledge that potential there could be hostages where the uh, the the strikes are about to occur. And you have to communicate to the families that you know, you did everything in your power to ensure people knew the gravity of carrying out those strikes, but that their loved ones might have been, might have been killed in those strikes. Is that what I'm hearing? And, and, and how do you communicate that? Is that something, or, you know, many people, I think without your level of expertise would say it's better just maybe for them not to know that because that's just, I mean, adds, it's just horrific. But you're, but you, through your experience, you've learned that it's truly in their best interest. Is that what I'm hearing? Uh, yes. Yeah, so I appreciate the premise of your question, and that's an important question as well. So how I would answer that is to say that there is always risk when you do any strike that civilians will be killed, and we want to minimize those risks. We did not think hostages were at the location where the strikes were going to take place, but that never is a hundred percent, right? It's never a hundred percent. In fact, I could give no percentage of a surety, but at the end of the day, the strikes took place and no one, no one that I 
briefed that information to, that I shared that information to, with the authority to do so, questioned the details. And they were respectful enough to know that we weren't going to talk about the specific intelligence that we had or did not have. At the end of the day, what they were satisfied knowing, to the extent they could be satisfied at all, is the fact that the United States of America considers individuals before an individual in their family, but other individuals that are being held hostage, that we consider them in the decision-making process. And I think that goes a long way to really be a metaphor for this hostage enterprise that's come a long way. And I can't underscore enough. There has been a continuity of thinking and thoughtfulness among administrations from the end of the Obama administration to us early on, day one in the Trump administration, and it continues in the Biden administration. There's just a continuity there to ensure that the relationships are maintained with the families. And I will tell you, I have personal relationships with um, hostage families, not only in nonprofits I'm associated with, like Hostage US and the Foley Foundation, but also just personally. And uh, we all talk. The toughest thing that I had to do was send a personal note to every hostage family, the hostage families that I knew, and tell them I was leaving government. And I was empty. There was an emptiness there, right? Because their loved ones, in some cases, weren't recovered. They weren't brought home. My job was unfinished. So anybody in this business lives with that unfinished business. And how do you learn to cope with that and just the gravity of that in the situation? But then, you know, as you go on in your life, knowing that there's, uh, there's this immense weight that, that you carry. Well, I, th I think that, that, the, that the work of hostage recovery is shared among this enterprise, this network I told you. It's kind of a support system. We all communicate with each other. And at the end of the day, many of us have seen a lot in combat. We've operated overseas. It's tough. We figure out how to compartmentalize. But the way I cope with it is by helping. That's all I can do. As a, as a civilian on the outside, I am able to reach out to the families and do check-ins with them and help them when they come to D.C., to see them when they come to Washington, D.C. So those are the things that I can do to bring hostage families to the International Spy Museum. And I tell them for the next couple hours while I give you a world-class tour, yeah. We're not talking about hostages, and I want you to really enjoy yourself. And we've done that on multiple occasions, and it's cathartic for me, and I think they enjoy it as well. Yeah, the, the authenticity of the relationship, I think it really it must mean a lot to them to see that you really do care about them. You care about uh, beyond just the uh, horribly un, uh, tragic situation that, where you met them and uh, but that you truly do care about uh, them and their well-being I'm sure it goes a long way with them no I think that's exactly right and I, I just have to make the point I think it's important to note that my colleagues and former former colleagues now and peers 
that they feel very, very similar to me. And they have these personal relationships, as I've said, and we all cope with it. And it's, it's healthy to give back. So I'm just maybe emblematic, just uh, the tip of the iceberg of this, uh, beneath the surface, uh, uh, network of people that have done this work. And it's quite extraordinary. We're all friends. We all communicate, as I said, and it's really healthy. And I think the family sense that. And uh, it's powerful. And I like to tell that story. Americans need to know that we want to bring our hostages home. Absolutely. And it's I imagine there's a certain level of trust in that network of uh, as you step away and uh, others fill that position. I'm I'm curious to uh, dive into you. You mentioned this relationship that you carry forward with these families, and you have a particular friend uh, that uh, that has that you met in a prior life. Who's? Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? And uh, who's a, maybe not a friend that most people would have? Yeah. So there was a terrorist that was cooperating with the U.S. government. And uh, in my official capacity, almost a decade ago, I went to see him while he was cooperating and I interviewed him. I spent time with him. I built rapport with him. And candidly, my objective was not only to build rapport, to demonstrate that I understood his case, to understood that there was some empathy on my part, although to be clear, he knew where I fell out. I was in the US government. I know I would have dealt with him very differently overseas. My peers would have. We understood that. But at the end of the day, he was helping me in particular with understanding the radicalization process. What brought him from the United States overseas to fight against Americans in Afghanistan, then find himself being trained by Al-Qaeda in Pakistan. The circumstances of his capture we can't talk about, but he was captured, he cooperated, and when I went to see him in custody, he was very, very interested for a lot of reasons, but he, he had to or his cooperate cooperative uh, agreement probably would have been null and void. But at the end of the day, he was very cooperative with me. And I followed his case for, for many years. And I found myself at the White House, again, responsible for policy. And uh, I discovered that he was being released uh, from prison. And collectively, we all agreed, um, not entirely, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't everyone that agreed with the sincerity of his cooperation necessarily. These things are subjective. But at the end of the day, um, he was released from prison after serving his time. And now he's out there in the world working really hard, uh, very hard, doing manual labor. And uh, I've continued that relationship. He served his time in pr prison. I want to make sure I'm available as a sounding board, I want to make sure he has somebody to talk to that he can trust. And we built that trust from the first days that I met him in, 
in prison while he was in custody. And as I said, I realized he was getting out while I was at the White House. I certainly didn't advertise to everyone that a policymaker at the White House was connected to this uh, <laughs> terrorist being released. It just wouldn't have really gone real well for me, right? It yeah. would have sent the wrong message. But at the end of the day, um, I'm very, very pleased that I was able to maintain a relationship. He served his time, uh, and I'm able to talk to him periodically. I'm able to do check-ins as a civilian, as somebody that is just interested as a human being to make sure he has somebody to talk to because... Authentically cares yeah, I, about I him. I think that's right. right? And, that rela- and, that, and that relationship, is back to the, when you built that trust in getting that information from him, you, you truly did care about him as a human. Right. And I guess that's fundamental to the business of human intelligence. And, and it comes with really knowing, yeah, that there's a level of deception in this business. It Watch the movies, right? It comes to, you know, just, you know, uh, aliases and using somebody else's name. We all know that tradecraft plays out. There, we see the television series. You see the stories at the spy museum. You hear from intelligence officers that did this work. We know that. But fundamental at the very base level, this is a human endeavor. And the best intelligence officers try to build sincere relationships based on trust. And uh, that's the nature of this business, finding that balance. Mm. You know, that, that uh, as, as we think about that and how that, that carries forward in the work now that you're doing at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm, I'm curious to understand how does an international spy museum operate it has to be operate somewhere physically, and that's in Washington D.C. How do you have a fair cross cultural representation? How do you have like, present these unbiased experiences for people who are coming and uh, and know that what you're presenting is authentic, uh, rather than just a an, an arm of the U.S. intelligence agency? How do you create that authenticity that you so naturally have? Uh, embodied throughout your career? So Luke, I love to answer that question. Thanks uh, so much for asking. Because as an intelligence officer, there's a vulnerability being an executive director at a spy museum. I'm there because I can be the face of the spy museum. I can work with our staff, our staff of curators. They, to be sure, are not former intelligence officers. Our staff are dyed-in-the-wool professional curators, historians, people that are in the business of facts and artifacts and storytelling. And they have taught me this, this other discipline that I knew nothing about. Like, I didn't roll into the spy museum and say, hey, I'm in charge today, and, uh, and I know what's going on here on quite on the contrary, I recognized on day one that I had a lot to learn. But the first lesson I learned was we are all about telling factual stories and doing that objectively. Now, that is a lot like being an intelligence officer. So there are some analogies here, right? Because my job, as I hope to under, as I hope I underscored, right, was to 
truth to power, reporting factually up my chain of command, uh, not embellishing reporting. That's the ethos of an intelligence officer, not being politicized. Well, our curation staff, our curators, our historians, and it's a small core of amazing individuals that are steeped in history, intelligence history, and understand and know the artifacts. They have to be absolute fact-based. And sometimes they tell stories that don't make the U.S. intelligence community look too good, like right? Like what? Like what? Uh, like the Bay of Pigs. There's a great story that reinforces to the world community a story about covert action, a failed covert action, an abysmal planning effort. It was an open secret in Florida and Cuba that the United States were going to conduct a secret invasion, right? Not so Pres secret. That's right. So secret that you know, President Kennedy was, it took a long time for the CIA to rebuild trust with President Kennedy, right? And uh, Alan Dulles was fired because of it. That's an American story, but we tell other stories that are equally embarrassing to other countries like France. Uh, France conducted a, a poorly executed covert action. They were going to sink a Greenpeace vessel in uh, in Australia, they killed a civilian. It was supposed to be plausibly deniable, a covert action. France killed a civilian. They were embarrassed. It caused a crisis. It was poorly executed, poorly conceived, and France looked horrible. It caused a crisis in France. Imagine, you know, conducting in a, a a uh, essentially an attempted sinking of a essentially a Greenpeace vessel that was disruptive to uh, nuclear testing for France, but still they were protesting and an individual was killed. That wasn't intended, but it doesn't matter. So that's embarrassing for France. And yet we let some former French intelligence officials tell their story. So that is a metaphor for what we do at the Spy Museum. We tell the good, bad, and the ugly sometimes about intelligence work, uh, successful and failures. We talk about intelligence failures in 9-11, leading up to 9-11. We talk about uh, the failures Again, a, a U.S. story at Pearl Harbor and how the dynamics, when laid out together, it looks remarkably similar. There were similar dynamics to, you know, the intelligence failures in 1941 and in 2001. So we spend an incredible amount of time at the Spy Museum laying out fact-based stories. And I will tell you, we get feedback from the U.S. intelligence community at times that they don't like some of the stories we tell. I'm and if, sure. And if they're factual, and of course, always responsibly done, we're not giving up any secrets, that's not an issue. What sometimes is of issue is the way we choose to tell that story. But at the end of the day, we have a professional staff, a world-class staff, but we do get feedback from the community that people don't like the story we tell, for example, and we have to tell them that we are not the Defense Intelligence Agency Museum. <laughs> we are right. not 
the Central Intelligence Agency Museum. We are the International Spy Museum. Our core mission is to educate the public on national security and the shadowy world of uh, espionage that we've been talking about. So sometimes people don't like the stories we tell. And we spend a lot of time making sure we tell the stories accurately. So I'm very, very proud of what I've learned about curating a museum from our staff. But uh, I think that you, your question gets to, to the very core of who we are. Some people think that because we're the spy museum, that we're aligned somehow to the intelligence community, and we're not. We get no funding Right, from and it could affect your counter to that. That's I mean, right. that's how, and that's how you build trust with everybody who walks through those doors. That's right. I'm, I'm interested in one of the exhibits at the spy museum. Uh, it's known as the top secret section. Mm -hmm. It says it explores the tensions between the secrecy necessary for spy agencies to operate and that tension between that and the openness necessary for effective democracy. How do you balance that, uh, not just at the spy museum, but really in the intelligence community? How do you balance the openness necessary for effective democracy and spy agencies being able to operate? Uh, if, can you walk us through what that looks like since we can't be there at the museum right now? Yes. Yeah, so there's always a healthy tension between what you're going to reveal to the public and what you keep secret. In that very gallery that you reference talks about Snowden, for example, some people emphatically believe that Snowden was, in quotes, a whistleblower. Now, I'm not going to tell you my personal opinion. It doesn't matter because we lay out the story and we let the public determine whether that individual was a whistleblower or like the bulk of the intelligence community believes, if not all of them, that he is a traitor to the United States of America. That is an example of an individual, in this case, Snowden, who went through, who had an obligation to protect secrets. He, he not only signed non-disclosure agreements, he had a moral, a moral, um, obligation to protect those secrets. He had a moral obligation to protect sources and methods. But somehow that individual made a decision that he needed to release that information. And that is just one vignette that we tell. We also talk about the Rosenbergs. And I'm doing this with just from my memories of spending so much time in that gallery. We, we tell the story of the Rosenbergs, right? They were executed executed for providing atomic secrets to our adversaries, the Soviet Union. And uh, for many, many, many years, the family, the sons, did not know the U.S. intelligence had, the, U the intelligence, the United States intelligence community had, that provided irrefutable evidence that Ethel Rosenberg was part of that network. That the wife. She, the wife of the husband who was also executed. So think about this. Both the Rosenbergs were executed. They went to the electric chair. The United States had some irrefutable intelligence that it could have told the public. There was a deliberate decision made that sharing that information with the public was not 
in the interest of national security. And then in the 1990s, a program called Venona that the United States had been reading the Soviets' mail, so to speak. We had broken some Soviet codes and we had the intelligence that could have told the family more facts behind that network. As I said, irrefutable facts that the parents who were executed were both linked to this atomic spy network, unequivocally so. But the United States decided not to release that to the public and take some, endure some criticism from the public that said no mother should be executed and electrocuted for espionage, regardless of the consequences. So just the very idea that you and I are having this discussion is inconsistent with many intelligence communities across the world. Former intelligence officers are not allowed in, in many countries to have these kinds of discussions, even unclassified information in their identities and a linkage to being intelligence officers are, are, are not uh, a common occurrence. But this nation, in this particular case, this is a, a, an interesting United States phenomenon where we have struck a balance or try frequently to strike the balance between a public's right to know and the nation's need to retain certain things uh, as secrets. So we have found an interesting balance. And I think it's so important for democracies to find that balance because other democracies aren't nearly as generous as we are with these kinds of stories. Um, like the UK. I mean, you won't see in the United Kingdom former intelligence officers uh, doing the kinds of things that I'm doing in my role as an educator at the Spy Museum. It's it's probably an imperfect balance, not to not to be critical, but it's probably an impossible balance to perfectly strike. How do you, uh, uh, something that's always personally fascinating me is the declassification process. Like the the fact that we have these treasured secrets as a as a government, and then there's a process to declassify that and share that. Some things that are like Bay of Pigs, you know, and affirm for everybody that it was an absolute disaster. Uh, but other things that the public would have never even known that they didn't know. And I'm sure a lot of that feeds into the uh, some of the the content you have at the International Spy Museum. Can you touch on that briefly? Just help me understand. Aside from democracy, is there another purpose to that? Well, I think for the United States, the idea of declassifying as much intelligence as we can is usually a result of a time distance from when those activities took place. And do we, but we have... Could, we could just never, right? There's That's right. Like many countries, we could just burn them and forget about it. That's exactly right. But again, it gets to the heart of what the United States, in your example, tries to achieve, and that is this, this balance of ensuring as a democracy that the people, the citizenry, have a window into what they're investing in. What these people that swear an oath, what are they doing? What, where does all this money go to? You know, the disrupted plots, that terrorist plots that are revealed to the public. That's 
important for the public to know that post 9-11, that the intelligence community, the FBI, in, in the specific case of maybe disrupted plots, are very much vigilant and working to protect the nation. It's very important to be able to share that to your nation. So there's a very bureaucratic, very uh, pedantic, you know, uh, painstaking process of declassifying intelligence. In some cases, it's just many, many years. In other cases, there's information that is so divisive that countries are still debating whether they're going to release information. I mean, there was just an article, Luke, this past week. I don't have it in front of me, but it was about Algeria. Algeria is so painful to France. The counterterrorism fight, the insurgency the, was so vicious in Algeria and in Algiers in particular that releasing some of what was classified French intelligence all these years on from the 1950s to the present day is still being debated. So uh, this is what societies have to do. They have to decide what is in the interest of their public. And uh, some of these, uh, some of these uh, secrets that are declassified are, are painful to, to, to process. Um, but that is, when you step back, that is why we have the International Spy Museum to help the public understand the dimension of not just espionage, but the, the entire intelligence cycle, analysis, signals intelligence, covert action that we talked about. And then, as you pointed out, when does a nation reveal its secrets? When does it retain those secrets? You know, what is the dimension of the cyber threat? So it is so healthy, in my opinion, that the spy museum really is able to educate the public on national security. And we do it with the artifacts, with the stories, and it's responsibly done with only declassified information and publicly available information. In fact, I very much stay away from our curators doing the declassification or FOIA requests, you know, uh, from the government to get things released. I kind of remove myself from that process and let the, the curators do their work and come up with the stories. I'm able to offer insights, but they're so good at what they do. I'm able, able to provide a point of view from an operations standpoint as a former intelligence officer. And I've got to say that we have board members that are former intelligence officers that are able to provide their insights. But we also have people that have spent their lives doing museum work that have no personal experience of doing intelligence work. They help us tell those stories appropriately and correctly uh, and deal with controversial issues as well. Right, just balancing the facts. Well, yeah. with, for just a little of a fun question here, what is the neatest spy gadget that you've seen at the museum? So it's, I, I get in trouble for this because I get so enthusiastic. People look at me funny. So <laughs> I, I want to tell you first, if it's okay, I want to tell you my favorite artifact is the ice axe that 
killed Trotsky, as macabre as that may seem. We have the actual ice axe that killed Trotsky. Wait, how do you have the ice axe? Uh, because H. Keith Melton is a uh, notable collector. He is on our board. He has donated his artifacts to the International Spy Museum. He's a close personal friend. He's a mentor. He's a coach. And he loves the business of intelligence. And he acquired that in Mexico um, years ago. That's a story in and unto itself. We maybe could <laughs> tell some other time, but he is a relentless collector. But that ice axe was an assassination tool, right? It wasn't a gadget. We have gadgets too, or mock-ups of gadgets like the- But um, wait, wait, why the ice axe? Why, why do I like the ice axe? Yeah. Why do we, what, well, because yeah. the ice axe was a actual assassination tool that was used by the Russian intelligence services, the Soviet intelligence service, the GRU, specifically the military. Well, I think it was the GRU, but regardless, it was the Soviet intelligence service dispatched an assassin to kill a dissident in Mexico City in 1940. That ice axe then was an assassination tool, and we have that actual ice axe. Now, this was front page news worldwide when it was first published. Um, the idea that the Soviets dispatched an assassin to kill a dissident that knew he was vulnerable. Now think about what the Russians are doing today. So we bring, illuminate current events through the prism of history. That's why I like seeing that ISAX. And it's just a piece of world history. It's not a U.S. intelligence story. That's another example of of a intelligence story that had uh, worldwide implications. Truly, and so, in, and as, as you look at that, that really just brings to life the the, the reality of the of the work that you've dedicated your life to, and so many people in your position have dedicated their lives to in the intelligence and the espionage world. I, I'm as we round out our time together. What do you want to ensure that everyone hears about the importance of trust and what we can do to create a better, more trusting world? Well, that's a, that's a terrific question, and I will answer it like this. Trust is fundamental with human relationships, and people are imperfect. But if individuals continually try to build trust by truly trying to trying to understand somebody else's point of view, trying to share as much information as they can, not being Machiavellian, you know, but being honest to the extent that you can and being conciliatory and being a good listener. Certainly today, all I've done is talk, but really an intelligence officer also has to be an excellent listener. And that's how you build trust. And it starts one person at a time. And I think by telling these kinds of stories and using your podcast as a platform to talk about the important, ever important, you know, nature of building trust, it's, it's more important now than ever, right? In a time where social media has been manipulated by intelligence services, we don't trust one another. We have polarized societies. And 
this has happened throughout history, but it seems to be pervasive today. And I think it's important to tell positive stories about building trust, even in this uh, shadowy world of espionage. The idea some people will guffaw at the notion of trust in the business of intelligence and will say, well, they're all liars in the first place. Well, I hope I've underscored that trust is the bedrock of being an intelligence officer. It is the very foundation of what we do. And certainly I've made the point that people who swear oaths, you know, it's implicit with any oaths that we take to our constitution that American citizens in particular can trust those that have this awesome responsibility to serve the public in intelligence work or military work or law enforcement work that we don't ever take for granted that at the end of the day, it's about trust. And I just would close by saying when I was at the White House, my predecessor left me with some powerful words. She, she said to me, you are going to the most important job in Washington, D.C. Now, I was very polite and I listened, but I was skeptical and it didn't show on my face. And I thought, certainly, there are other people that have more important jobs than being responsible for preventing a terrorist attack in the United States. And there were other critical jobs and I certainly wasn't the most important cog in that national security wheel. But in time, I realized that I had a crucial job, and we can argue whether it was the most important job in D.C., preventing a 9-11 with my team of professionals. But at the end of the day, it was about knowing that the United States didn't know who I was, but they had a trust that somebody, someone was preventing a 9-11. And that someone really is a whole, a whole network of people in the U.S. intelligence community, but also our foreign partners, but my team specifically, you'll never know their names and faces. You're, you're hearing a little bit from me, but we were really just a, a, a symbolic representation of those people that are quietly, quietly protecting the nation. And it's, it's, it's good to always remind ourselves. The touchstone was maybe seeing the flag, you know, flying over the White House or taking a walk to some of our monuments and reminding ourselves that the nation reposes special trust in us to protect them from terrorists, to provide intelligence overseas. And that really is our calling. So, so beautifully said and the, the, the touchstone uh, of everything that the intelligence community does, and the fact that every that every American citizen can sit comfortably in their homes, knowing that there are these these, as you said, quiet professionals that are working out there, and that you don't need to know who they are because we trust that they're out there working on our behalf, keeping this country safe. And so, thank you so much for just everything that you've done to the men and women that you've worked with, some of the things that 
that I've heard that you sh- uh, you share here is how critical it is to navigate trust with those people you're working with, the people that are watching your back, quite literally, as uh, when you're in ranger school, and then also with the intel sources that you're protecting them, gaining valuable information from them, and there's this rep- reciprocity that's happening there. Uh, the criticality of sharing embellished facts, whether that's with the public to form a better, stronger democracy, or whether that's with the families of hostages, uh, these hostage families who desperately are seeking any information they can, even when it's probably not always the the best news, but uh, it's news that they need to hear. And so, and the the final thing that you shared here uh, that I, I really want to capture is that humans are imperfect and that we have to do our best to build that trust in an imperfect society with imperfect people. I mean, there's so many so many pieces to what you shared here that I hope our audience can take away. So to those listening, anything that you heard, any of these takeaways, please comment them, tweet them. We'd love to hear what you've heard from Colonel Costa here and just the importance of trust as it, uh, as it plays into our daily lives and into the lives of those who are protecting our country. And so I have a question for you, uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Costa, what is the best way for our listeners to connect with you online to hear more of your perspective? So I am on LinkedIn, um, which is a change from leaving, leaving the U.S. government. Uh, it was a, <laughs> it was a, for me, quite dramatic evolution to go from no one knowing you to all of a sudden being sort of a public figure in my role at the Spy Museum. So you can find me on LinkedIn and you can also check out the International Spy Museum's website here in Washington, D.C., where we can update you on our programs. But I love to brag about a program that our team put together. Please. One, once a month, I do what we call Spy Chat, where I bring in a luminary from the intelligence community who, just like me, has to balance the idea of what they can say uh, and, and what they want to share. But we really unwind, unwrap, really, uh, current national security stories. And we share what we think the public should know about those stories. And once a month, you can ask me a question. We are now uh, doing those programs live, and you can ask our staff questions, and then we post it on YouTube. So every month we do what we call spy chat at the International Spy Museum. I would love for your audience to become, you know, members or not members, uh, I guess in quotes. To tune right? in. Yeah, to tune in and become unofficial members of the spy chat. Uh, club and you can sign up. It doesn't cost anything and you'll get a chance next week. We have Lieutenant General Bob Ashley. He was a peer and colleague and good friend of mine. He commanded uh, defense led defense intelligence agency. He's a great American. Bob will join me and we're just going to talk about current events. What's in the news? What is happening from a national security standpoint? And then we open ourselves up to questions uh, from our audience. Those questions come in live and uh, we, we are as honest as we are allowed to be. If we can't answer a question due to classification, we don't answer those questions. But that rarely happens. We're able to talk about current events through the prism of open source reporting, news articles and what the media is reporting. So I would ask your audience to check it out. 
Absolutely. I know I'll be listening in. The spy spy chat, right? On the Air National Spy Museum website. Spy chat, right? Next Thursday is uh, is our monthly spy chat, as I said. And then Super we'll have exciting. one each each uh, month moving forward as long as we can. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I so much appreciate your time, Colonel Costa. This has been such a, a valuable lesson for me personally, and I know our audience, I'm certain, got a lot out of this. So thank you so much, and uh, really appreciate you sharing all this valuable information. Luke, it truly was a privilege, and I mean that. Thank you for what you're doing. Well, thank you. And to all those tuning in, please join us next time on The Trust Revolution. Trust Revolution.